From beach towels to tea towels, and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Good company and civilized debate with a premium on fun. Ross Cameron on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, good day, uh, good evening, and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Um, been a beautiful day in Sydney. The wind has picked up a little bit in the afternoon, but a perfect sort of summer November uh, Sydney day where I am. I hope you have likewise uh, been the uh, beneficiary of the gifts of Mother Nature. Um, I was thinking about uh, wanting to begin on a positive, the things we love. And uh, I asked a bloke uh, recently um, at the Double Bay Country Club, um, who was the dead person he most admired? And uh, I think it's a good question to ask, uh, you know, who do you love and who do you admire? Who are the figures who produce when you see their name unexpectedly in a uh, report of some kind that your mind immediately hones in? Uh, on the subject matter, who are the names in history who, when you hear them spoken, you feel a kind of release of serotonin in the brain, the happy chemicals, and you wish to think again and more deeply um, on the subject matter. Uh, obviously, every every human being, uh, with possibly uh, one exception, is a mixture of nobility and venality um yet we find there are some who uh, some who stand out some who take a place in our imagination uh, in our memory indeed in our affections i suppose uh you know the believing christians would say that jesus of nazareth is a an exception to the rule that we are humans are a mix of uh, flaws and uh and and gifts um very interesting question then of whether um jesus can be described as a human being uh, if he was conceived without a biological father, uh, is he a member of the set of humans or not a member? And uh, I remember my six, six seven-year-old son asked me that question, how can Jesus be God? It's sort of the flip side of the same question. And in a way, it raises uh, an interesting little delicate uh, moment in uh, mathematics, uh, in particular in the study of set theory, which was only really discovered in the late 19th century as a, as a form of analysis, which is interesting after so many thousand years of mathematics. Um, but is Jesus a member of the set of uh, human beings uh, or not? Certainly the orthodox Christian view is that he is both 100% um, human and 100% God. If that uh, can, that square peg can be made to fit in a round hole. 
And this, of course, was the uh, paradox, uh, which is described by some as a ripple in the foundations of mathematics, uh, which Bertrand Russell came upon um, when he was seeking to rewrite, if you like, or simplify uh, the underlying logical foundation of uh, mathematics. And um, he uh, came across uh, what came to be known as Russell's paradox. And he thought he, uh, I think it was Immanuel Kant who had the view that mathematics was purely an invention of the human mind, a completely synthetic construct uh, a work of fancy and of pure um, fiction, if you like, imagination. Uh, whereas Russell and his colleague, the other great genius, Frege, uh, had the view that mathematics was indeed um, a embedded in the DNA of the universe and that uh, no man or woman discovered it, but that they were simply revealing a set of, uh, if you like, metaphysical principles um, and that those principles could be relied upon with absolute certainty and predictability. And uh, Russell sought to, and Frager effectively sought to prove that proposition by reference to set theory uh, with a series of uh, axioms until uh, they came unstuck. And, uh, you know, the first principle of set theory is that you can make a set of anything you can imagine without limitation whether it be animate or inanimate, singular or plural, um, masculine or feminine, current or history, you can put anything you want into a set, uh, under set theory, but then the question arose, can you make a set of all the elements that are not members of a set? And that simple almost naive question, a bit like, can Jesus be God? Um, perplexed and threw a spanner in the works. And um, Bertrand Russell indeed wrote a two-page letter uh, to his great um, compatriot and uh, colleague, um, and said, uh, Houston, we have got a problem. And it is said that on receipt of uh, the letter, um, Gottlob Frager's uh, response was an actual physical and mental breakdown uh, that led to his hospitalisation. But one of the points uh, that I would make is that, uh, the, and the truth is that, that they made, and mathematicians since uh, have gone to a great deal of effort to try and find a set of axioms that can be simply stated um, 
in support of the incontrovertible uh, metaphysical um, logic of uh, mathematics, of arithmetic. Um, but so far, you know, it seems uh, it has been difficult to achieve. And um, I guess I, I, I only mention it um, because we ought to begin uh, our analysis with an acceptance that there are many things we don't understand. Uh, there are many parts of the data picture that we don't have or don't yet have, and some in which indeed we may never have. Uh, there are, we can sort of, a, an even a person untrained in mathematics like myself can understand the difficulty of Russell's paradox. Um, you know, can you create a set out of all those things which are not the member of any set? Um, you know, it tells us that, that we haven't got the full picture we have not been able to produce a complete reconciliation of the logical uh, system of uh, numbers uh, and the language of mathematics uh, with a set of incontrovertible simple um, principles of logic we just don't know if it can be done maybe it can maybe the human brain is simply too small uh, perhaps as a uh, member inside the set of created things, um, it may be that our brains are simply not capable of imagining or understanding uh, the, uh, you know, whether indeed uh, mathematics was invented um, or discovered. So I say to you, um, uh, you know, my beloved audience, uh, my mother and her book club, um, we always begin with the sort of little uh, glimmer of humility in saying there's plenty of things we don't understand uh, that we are capable of getting wrong, that even the greatest minds of the 20th century were unable uh, to resolve the question can you have a set of all of those uh, elements that are not members of any set? Um, we walk, uh, we see through a glass darkly. Um, our vision is imperfect. And we think this is one of the reasons, this sort of appreciation of the limits of our knowledge and insight is one of the reasons why the ancient Greeks placed such an emphasis on moderation because they saw the dangers of uh, fanatical behavior on any subject uh, when we can't answer the most basic questions of uh, from whence did we come and to what destination shall we return. Uh, you're on the Ross Cameron Show and we'll be right back. 
Mark Morano on TNT Radio. Anti-Semitism existed long before DEI, but here it is. At the heart of DEI is a simple binary. The world is divided between oppressors and the oppressed. Proponents of DEI cast white people as oppressors, black people as the oppressed. Will they apply this frame primarily to America? They often apply it to Israel too. Apparently, Israel is a bastion of Jew whiteness with a racist commitment to shattering the lives of non-white Palestinians. What's interesting about Jews as white oppressors. This is exactly what got Whoopi Goldberg in trouble on The View, where she actually, and, and still even doubled down the next day, didn't think it was a big deal, but was finally forced by ABC to take a few days leave, issue an apology. But she essentially said that the Holocaust in Nazi Germany was no big deal because it was just white on white oppression. You know, not, not the kind of thing that we'd be concerned with today in our multicultural landscape. The Mark Morano Show on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Our beautiful world is changing, withering, dying by the hands of those who don't value nature, even though we all depend on it for life itself. But there is hope. Together with caring friends, the Nature Conservancy can restore our lands, heal our waters, and save our wildlife with big solutions only nature can provide. But every day we lose more of the places we love and we urgently need to save endangered lands, waters, and wild species. The actions we take today will determine the tomorrow we leave to our children and grandchildren. The water they drink, the air they breathe, the beauty they experience. To learn more about how you can help protect and conserve our beautiful world, visit nature.org today. Internet. Internet. A stream online. TNT Radio. Live. Today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Welcome back. Um, I am um, looking forward to introducing you to my next guest, whose uh, name is Craig L. Hall, and who is the author of a book which I have uh, in my left hand. And uh, I would show you, if I could, titled Breakfast Barons, Serial Critters, and the Rosenhain and Lippmann Legacy. And uh, on one level, you might say it's a relatively obscure on undertaking, but on the other hand, has been recommended by the Premier's Department as a text for high school students. Um, it continues to sell uh, almost two decades after it was first published. And at about the 100-year anniversary of the introduction of Kellogg's breakfast cereals to Australia, I thought it would be a good idea to get historian of Australian breakfast premiums, uh, Craig Hall, on the line. Welcome to the show. Uh, hello, Ross. It's uh, good to be here. Well, listen, uh, tell us what is a, uh, in the industry, the word premium is used as a kind of term of art. Uh, why don't you tell us what it means? Well, a premium <clears throat> uh, is something additional um, added to the product for free, and it's used as an enticement to increase sales and get people to buy the products. And it's used across many products. So you might get a free 
toothbrush with toothpaste or a free soap holder with soap or um, a free little uh, plastic cup inside washing powder. And so this was a plastic toy inside a breakfast cereal product which was primarily targeted to children, and so the premium was a toy. And I guess um, it raises your book, which I have to say, um, from the extraordinarily sort of fun and colourful cover, which is a collage of an actual uh, full-colour photograph of, I guess, sort of 50 different cereal box toys, um, yet I find as soon as I open the work and get into the first couple of paragraphs that it's really quite a serious work of history uh, that you've undertaken. Um, tell us about the, and I know, you know, for the, for the benefit of our listeners, that you've actually recently just completed a PhD in history in a completely different realm which is a reflection on the sort of social and economic cultural context of the book of Corinthians in the first century AD under the Roman Empire. It's hard to imagine two subjects more different. How did you get hooked on breakfast cereal premiums? Well, they were marketed uh, in this way from 1960s through the 1970s, and I was a 1960s, 70s child. And during those times, uh, getting um, getting a toy at any time, mostly you only got one at a birthday or at Christmas. Um, but, Craig, the story you tell really revolves around a certain kind of genius, as I read it, of three blokes, two the Rosenhain brothers, Peter and Carl, and a, bro a bloke named Bruno Kurt, Peter and Kurt. Then we've got Bruno Lippmann. Uh, the point I would make to you is that uh, you had these three sort of Jewish, as it turns out, emigres to Australia from, I think, uh, Eastern Europe, uh, came to the joint with nothing, and... Uh, needed to find a way to sustain them and their families and found themselves by some process producing the toy and card inserts for hundreds of millions of boxes of cereal sold all over the world. And so we have this... Um, generation about two decades of children uh looking forward to probably their favorite part of breakfast was when they got to open a new box and take out the latest toy whether it was related to a farm animal series um a collection of soldiers and tanks in battle uh an astronaut going to space uh, the job of the marketing guys was to come up with the frame story, if you like, uh, into which could be populated uh, the individual plastic injection moulded toys. And so out of one relatively small factory in Melbourne, these guys uh, built a kind of empire from 
Carlton Street, Carlton in Victoria, Cereal Foods Limited, uh, a company which seems, uh, and these three entrepreneurs who each had sort of different skills, uh, but a tremendous attention to detail and to the quality of the product they were producing. They understood their market and they uh, gave it the product they wanted. I'm going to read you while uh, Craig is offline. I'm going to read you just a, a, a paragraph of the book, the opening of chapter six, uh, which is called Production. And there's an interesting, contains an interesting story, which I quite liked, thought you might enjoy. Quality control was essential to R&L's export success. So R&L was Rosenheim and Lippmann. In the Melbourne factory, Bruno himself carried out random checks on production. In those early years, Bruno's son, Brian, worked in the factory during school holidays. On one occasion, he recalls his father plunging his hand into a box of toys next to the machine in operation. Upon pulling out a handful of toys and finding just two items in his hand were substandard, Bruno immediately shut down the production line. Brian recalls, I asked my father why he had shut down the production just because of two damaged toys. In his familiar European accent, Bruno replied, you think I am so lucky that I find the only two damaged toys. The implications were that if a random handful of produced two damaged items, the whole production could be contaminated by damaged product. This philosophy contains the fundamentals of the science of random sampling for quality control. I liked it. Um, Okay, so boys and girls, um, I'm going to just say to you that if you find a copy of Breakfast Barons, these guys over about 20 years became the major producers to the three biggest, uh, the major suppliers of toys, of cards, of games, of nick, of premiums, of moulded plastic products uh, to the three biggest cereal makers in the world their average size of an order for a particular piece was over a million pieces. And they did it all from a tiny factory in Melbourne with a deep commitment to quality control. And, um, you know, they're, they're an example, if you like, of this wonder of capitalism, that if we will just create a realm of private property, so that a person may own what they create. And if government limits its role to the enforcement of private property rights, uh, what we find is that the creativity um, of the human imagination and the fluidity of capitalism, a game in which, in effect, anyone can play, uh, many people starting with nothing, finish with a great deal, 
And indeed, one of the rules of the game is there is no upper limit uh, to what a person may accumulate if she or he is capable of imagining a product or service of any kind that someone else will pay for and producing that product um, with a gap between its cost and revenue uh, to be allowed to keep the difference. And that very, very simple principle uh, it was Chairman Mao, I think, who ironically enough said, let a thousand flowers bloom. And this is what we find uh, in relation, for example, I think quite an interesting challenge. If you're a marketing executive for a breakfast cereal manufacturer and you've got to come up with any kind of idea, any sort of dream, any image uh, in the mind of a child that will motivate them to urge their parent to buy a box of wheat bix as opposed to Nutri-Grain or cornflakes, um, you know, you've got a valuable, uh, you've got a valuable uh, gift if you make a factory which employs the most expert and skilled industrial artists to design the moulds out of multiple different materials uh, and find a means to inject them with a fairly fast-setting plastic and to extract them so that the mould is porous enough to allow air to escape so that there are no air bubbles, but tight enough to ensure that the plastic doesn't leak out into unwanted extensions. Uh, then you may become uh, very rich indeed. You may bring pleasure and joy uh, to millions, indeed tens and hundreds of millions of children around the world. I'm not sure the contents, the rest of the contents of the box was usually bringing uh, good health to the recipients. Um, but the toys uh, certainly brought a great deal of pleasure. And so I guess the test, the challenge that comes to me is to realise that one can imagine, it just as you can include any different uh, factual phenomena, any phenomena in a set, under mathematics set theory, uh, there is really no limit to the number of products or services uh, or businesses that you might create if the government will just leave capitalism alone for long enough for individuals to express their creativity. Well, uh, there you go. That is um, Craig Hall's contribution to the creativity of the human species, breakfast barons, cereal critters, the Rosenhine and Lippmann legacy. Stay with us. We'll be right back. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. Once again, I'm going to quote from my buddy Mark Marano's Climate Depot. This is just unbelievable what I see going on at this summit between Biden and the Chinese government. As a matter of fact, the most alarming thing is that John Kerry was anywhere around that place. These two guys and their administrations have been bullying the United States of America over a problem that even if it existed, we have very little to do with it. Australia, UK, you have nothing to do with it. Canada, you have nothing to do with it. Seriously, if you look at the amount of CO2 you put in the air compared to total CO2, it truncates to zero. 
Now, who is the biggest polluter, if you want to call CO2 pollutant? It's China. So expert raise alarm after Biden strikes climate agreement with China to shut down fossil fuels. What, what kind of insanity is this? China thumbs their nose and laughs at the rest of the world. And guess what? It's our fault they do it. You know why? They know darn well that this is not a big disaster. They know darn well they have to push forward their population. I mean, I realize China's in bad shape as far as freedoms go, but they are trying to work in their own whatever manner to try to create more freedoms and more prosperity for China. So of course they're going to sit there and try to stop the United States. And these guys just walk right into it. It's disgusting. Americans are letting a guy and his buddy John Kerry bully them over a situation they have precious little to do with. Let me read you the facts. CO2 is 0.042% of the atmosphere. Man is responsible for 3 to 5% of that. The United States is responsible for 10% of that total. Australia, Canada, the UK, about 1%. Essentially, it's nothing. Much ado about nothing. They weaponize weather in a phony climate war. It's unbelievable. This is TNT, climate and weather watchdog, meteorologist Joe Bastardi, asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. I need to go get my rabies shots. The challenges our planet's animals are facing sometimes feel a bit heavy. The animals haven't eaten in a day, two days. They haven't drank anything. They're cold, they're dehydrated. As soon as we started our descent, everywhere I could see was mud. Just absolutely mud. Now the country has been long for drought so long. It was like a tinderbox waiting to go up. Okay, very heavy. Each of us wants to be part of the solution. And we can be. Remember that there's good happening right now. At home. All right, we were able to get into your unit and we have all four of your cats. So, uh... <laughs> okay. And around the world. For any animal in any disaster. So let's focus on that, right? Be part of the solution. One rescue at a time. Search ifa.org forward slash disaster ready. Driving the conversation. Ross Cameron on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Good evening and welcome back. Um, many of us have felt the rise of what might be described as the uh, pharmaco state. This apparent uh, merger, we might call it collusion, uh, perhaps takeover uh, of the uh, public sector bureaucracies by these massive uh, global pharmaceutical corporations. And um, indeed, I think with Saul Alinsky, uh, not in Rules for Radicals, but in a different uh, essay titled um, How to Implement, I think, the Socialist Revolution, he said, well, the first thing you have to do is take over people's health care because if you can control uh, human health, uh, you will be able to control the whole person. And um, the question arising is, what do we actually do about it? Uh, is it possible to maintain any sense of autonomy as a physical uh, specimen, as an um, individual uh, human being? 
Uh, do we still believe in the Nuremberg Code principles, which required a high standard of uh, disclosure, of um, uh, articulation of risk, of identification of potential side effects uh, before a human being might be asked to participate in a medical experiment? But those conventions seem to have been entirely uh, trashed over the COVID uh, lockdown and mass mandates, mass vaccination experience. And so the question of how do we respond, I think, rather than simply lamenting, uh, getting depressed or rolling up our sleeves for the next mandatory injection, um, the question is, what do we do? And one person whose mind I respect, who has given quite a bit of thought to this subject, is my next guest. Uh, Diana Dragomirovic is the CEO of Australian Medical Network. Uh, Diana, welcome to the Ross Cameron Show. Good evening, Ross. It's lovely to meet you. Well, I'm always happy to receive that at the start of the interview. Not everybody has the same view uh, by the end of it. Um, but tell us, um, Diana, tell us a little bit about your story. I assume you either have a, a Serbian origin or perhaps a connection. Uh, what, tell us where do the Dragomiroviches come from originally? The... My family or my father comes from what is called today the Serbian Republic in Bosnia, Herzegovina, and he came to Australia in the late 60s when the wave of migration came through then, and my mother came a few years later, um, and they both left their countries because of lack of opportunities due to communism. And so they came here expecting to give their family uh, the opportunities that they didn't get to have. You know, you have to think if you if you if you were part of the system in in communist Yugoslavia, that means you were a member. You had privileges, but if you weren't, you were denied those privileges. And so do you think, I often sort of wonder, when I'm interviewing someone like you, you're a leader, you're in a senior executive role leading one of the, if not the fastest growing medical networks of sort of clinical professionals of various, uh, you might tell us a little bit about the Australian Medical Network. I presume my, my rough understanding is that there is a feeling that the AMA, the traditional sort of union of doctors, has been sufficiently co-opted and corrupted by the state that under their AMA leadership, doctors become effectively just government bureaucrats, uh, functionaries, uh, exercising virtually no judgments themselves, including the Hippocratic obligation uh, to do no harm. Um, tell us about the uh, Australian Medical Network. In your previous, um, when you were, before I came on, you talked about market, free market, and AMN perfectly slots into free market. Now, I think when you've been an organisation that has been around for a long time and if you don't have the proper feedback in your organisation, 
where you can't test what the market wants, it starts to, I guess, reflect in your policies. So AMN found a gap and we actually were born out of the pandemic when the response to the pandemic was quite tenacious, as you, as we all recall. And we were the first organisation that actually actively treated we um, supported doctors, we, we held weekly educational programs to teach them how to deal with COVID. And um, you were mentioning when you introduced me that, you know, there's, there's all sorts of obstacles and, and, and limitations and is there a threat to our autonomy? I, I think in Australia we still have a lot of leeway and we can we can push boundaries within the legal aspect of our system so we came out as a result of that and then as a result of covid uh the the feedback we were getting was we want an organization that can actually listen to us so we started to develop programs around that and then we also have a a wonderful another wonderful element which is patients general public they will come to us so they generally come to us and asking, do you know a trusted doctor? And this is, I think, Ross, a very important point is trust has been shattered. And how do we rebuild this trust? And that's something that we're we're doing. And my job as, as CEO is to help the profession thrive and to help support the profession as well as help patients receive the right treatments and, and delivery and access because it's it's a very it's very messy. It's very messy. Okay, so let's assume you're, you know, average Joe citizen um, who does not wish to be a victim uh, of this uh, somewhat brutal machine, uh, who prefers not to be complicit in uh, breaches of medical consent um but may not be a medical professional just in that subset you refer to of patients uh what, what is your advice to a listener in that situation uh, what have you learned and what are you advocating so majority of people don't like government but they love government services so one of the things that we teach is self-responsibility and in self-responsibility is where you get to decide what you do with your body you get to have a collaborative approach with your your doctor whether it's in a hospital setting or whether it's in a private clinic and we rely on our doctors to to share with us what's wrong what's right what are the risks and there is there is a case law out there which is rogers versus whitaker which is a high court case which covers this and doctors are under an obligation to share the risks and with the general public or a patient we need to understand what our rights are and we also need to take responsibility not just with respects to uh, understanding how the system works but also our financial, our, our health. So, Ross, almost half of the chronic diseases that are out there, they're actually preventable. We spend something like $24 billion a year on, on diseases that we could prevent. 
the government is now investing something like 1.1 billion in teaching us how to prevent diseases. These are not difficult. These are not difficult things to do, but because of our love of government services, our dependence on Medicare, that is what's inhibiting us. So what the first thing someone needs to do is take responsibility for their health and realize that that is their responsibility. Okay. Um, what do you say to, you've got a situation where, for example, even the Therapeutic Goods Administration, which is essentially, as I read it, perhaps with help from some other specialists, um, the agency which decides, A, um, what medical product is safe for consumption, uh, and B, what medical products will make their way onto the uh, rivers of gold in the medical benefits schedule, what products will attract a taxpayer subsidy. Um, yet we find the TGA making these decisions is uh, by contradistinction to many other regulators around the world. It is uh, very, very heavily funded, uh, lubricated by the very pharmaceutical companies that are submitting drugs for approval uh, and for funding. Um, what sort of, uh, do you think there are changes in governance of the approvals process that we should consider? Definitely. There, there seems to be a, it's a closed shop up that end of the world and it would be much more beneficial if there was more collaboration across, you know, from government down to, down to the, you know, the, the GP that is that is a very skilled GP that knows how to treat, understands the different ways that um, different drugs and nutraceuticals, if you want to add that, interact with each other. Um, at the moment, that is very difficult. Um, we have had dealings with the TGA over the last few years because of, they're very strict with advertising guidelines and I've been able to meet with them face-to-face -face and... It's very, if, if you could get a seat at the table, there could be change. But until you get the seat, a seat at the table, it's, it's very difficult. And this is another thing I think that's important to, to, to relay to, to your listeners is that people get scared if they can't get access to drugs. And, and yes, you know, for some people, that's, that is an important and very real, real problem. However, there are still things that people can do that, can decrease their use of drugs. And so until we have that more collaborative um, approach to how drugs are approved, and, and many of these drugs, I guess, are approved because of external forces. Um, you know, there are, there are different agendas, I guess, that are going on externally to our country that, you know, get fed into Australia. And a lot of the decision-making, I it's very difficult to to figure out where how that decision making process actually happens because when you try and get um, information through the freedom of it, in, you know um, what's it called freedom of information, freedom of information. yeah mm -hmm. thank you it's you know things get redacted they get redacted and then you've got to go to that another step to try and unredact it's it's a very it's a very interesting uh, process. And COVID, had that not happened, we would not have been, um, I guess, 
some people have been dealing with this for a very long time in different aspects of medical medicine, um, but I think COVID really opened our eyes to this. Well, as I understand it, um, there, there are still multiple colleges, specialties of medicine in Australia, where if you are a young GP and you wish to join the Australian College of Ophthalmologists, they will simply say you cannot join the college, no matter what your other credentials and qualifications, unless you have a uh, certificate of vax COVID vaccine currency, that in effect, you must inject the drug if you wish to join the college. Well, it seems to me to be um, a guarantee that you will never get um, a cohort of truly independent uh, clinical um, experts making original judgments if they've already had to sacrifice their entire uh, medical integrity to join the college. Mm. That's a very good point. And this is a problem that many doctors are coming to us with, specialists, uh, students. And again, there are the thing is, Ross, is that we deal with people who are both vaccinated and unvaccinated. So this is not about 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 who's vaccinated, who's unvaccinated, who's vaccinated, who's unvaccinated. It's the challenge is that people who are who elect to not be vaccinated, who are excellent physicians, who are excellent, a, a, a fantastic at what they do, and yet they're denied the ability to work. And this is happening at the university level too. We had um, a group of university students in um, at UQ that we were helping because they couldn't finish their degrees. And slowly through a lot of um, letters and legal support and human rights commission support, well, the human human rights commission aspect of it is still is still ongoing, but the but the legal side, they're starting to get some results. So that's what we say to doctors also. There is a way, but you've just got to find the right approach because there are doctors who are coming back to work who are, who are not vaccinated and it's happening all over Australia. Some states are, are more harder on that than others. It is a problem and that's something that we, we're really trying to help them fix. Okay. Um, so who's in your uh, who's if you're out there touting for members? If we want to give you a plug, I mean, what categories of membership are open, and what do they get for what they pay? Yes, that's great. So we our memberships. There's about four different types of memberships. You have the uh, the medical and health. That's for people who are you know who are in the who are working in the system. Then we have community members. We have memberships for retired uh, physicians and healthcare workers. We also have hardship because some people lost jobs during COVID and, and they're still finding it difficult to get back on their, their feet. So the memberships offer um, access to our masterclasses, which we have every fortnight. We also uh, will also access to the, um, we have treatment protocols and medical research. We're also now going to be um, unveiling some new services because we've been, up until I guess this year, we've been 
quite the charity where we haven't really been focusing on on building our I guess our revenue it's been mostly to help people and that will always be the case but what now we need to do is now we need help and the wonderful thing that happened recently is we got DGR status which that means that anyone who donates which is different to becoming a member anyone who donates gets 100% tax deductible on their donation and uh, moving I- yes Okay. Thank you um, for, the, for the opportunity, Ross. Well, that's okay. Look, uh, everybody's selling something.